Welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. I'm Ben. I'm Sarah. How are you doing, Sarah? Doing pretty good. Super excited to watch this movie. So this week, we are watching Orlach's Hand, uh, an Austrian film, and this is another uh, expressionist horror film for us. The title translates as The Hands of Orlac, and the film is based on a horror novel, uh, Le Mans d'Orlac, by Maurice Renard. Uh, Sarah, do you want to enlighten us a bit about the author of this novel? Yeah, Maurice Renard had quite, quite the life. He lived from 1875 to 1939, He's generally regarded as one of the most important French science fiction writers in the early 20th century. Oh. Uh, he was incredibly inspired by H.G. Wells. Uh, a little bit of Poe here, though, that kept popping up, but Wells seemed to be, like, the main dude mm. who inspired him. That's sort of funny, because, like, Wells often said, like, his main inspiration was Jules Verne, who was French. Wells was English, so we're kind of... <laughs> Got some back and forth across the channel happening here. Yeah. What's really interesting with Renard is he wrote his second novel in 1908. His, his first novel was a collection of short stories. Okay. But his second book in 1908, titled Le Docteur Lern translated as Dr. Lern Subgod. Um, okay. Is almost like a response or parody of Dr. Moreau. Okay. The Island of Dr. Moreau has the archetypal mad scientist. He does these organ transplants between human and animal, and it's supposed to be a bit of a parody of evolution as well, and it's dedicated to H.G. Wells. Mm, who wrote uh, Dr. Moreau. Yeah, The Island of Dr. Moreau. And a lot of his books seem to be in the similar vein of being like, hey, you did this thing, here's how I'm going to do it better. <laughs> In 1923, he wrote L'homme qui voulait être invisible from 1923, The Man Who Wanted to Be Invisible, and it's a Okay, so to... H.G. Wells is the invisible man. Yeah, but the whole thing is like, Renard is like, if he's invisible, his retinas can't pick up light, so he'll be blind. Like, that's his whole thing. It's all so, like, so well, actually... Whole... Yeah, he's just, <laughs> he's well actuallying his, like, inspiration... Yeah, oh, which man. is just hilarious. Um, and then, of course, it goes on to do all of this like really neat body horror stuff mm -hmm. uh, that is a bit more of his own original ideas rather than a response to something. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so he was born in 1875. Uh, he went to Paris in 1887. He was in school in Reims in 1892 to 94. Then he did about three years of military service in Reims from 90, 1896 to 99, and that's when he discovered H.G. Wells in science fiction. He didn't do any writing during World War One. He has a couple of things that came out turn of the century, uh, so like early 1900s, but most everything else seems to be after World War One. He served as a cavalry officer uh, in the French army in World War One, and the first thing he wrote after the World War was Le Man de Lac, uh in 1922. Okay, so this was a fairly recent book then when it was turned into a film. Yeah, only a couple of years, which is interesting because pretty much every other adaptation we've seen has had, like, it's been an adaptation of Poe, who was writing, like, in the mid-1800s. Yeah, or there's, you know, just been some, there's been some distance, you know, it's it's stuff like Jekyll and Hyde or Dracula that had already been around for a little while and had enough time to build up a little bit of a literary cachet. Mm -hmm. But I guess by this point, you know, the horror movie craze in Germany was popular enough that you're just looking for what you can find and what you can adapt, you know, almost uh, with a bit less of a pick-and-choose attitude. <laughs> what I thought was uh, kind of a neat thing is this trend towards body horror in Renard's work 
it's not like the Hands of Orlok is like the only time that we see that. Mm. We kind of see it in his second novel where it's that response to the island of Dr. Moreau. Le Man d'Orlok was published in 1922. The following year was L'Homme Truquet, which tells the story of a doctor grafting electronic eyes into this guy who's blind. Wow. That's a cool story to be doing in the 20s, like, because that's something that, like, we're just starting to kind of figure out how to do now, right? Yeah. And then the next thing that he wrote in 1925, Le Sing, was about a cloning process. Okay. So very cutting-edge science fiction for the time. Mm-hmm. And very, like, all kind of focused on, like, human body, biological, like, medical science, it seems. Yeah, which was really interesting to see. Les Mens de Lac, his novel, has pretty much the same plot as the film that we're going to be watching. Pianist Stephen Orlock is in a railway accident with head and hand injuries. Famous and controversial Dr. Sorel transplants hands from a recently guillotined assassin onto Orlock, and he starts to fear that his hands have an evil mind of their own. Okay. Hence why uh, it's always emphasized that he has head injuries as well because it's never quite, like, sure whether he's just imagining it Uh from head trauma or what. Okay. And, yeah, he goes on, (laughs) not quite an adventure, but uncovers conspiracy and mystery with his wife to figure this out. Uh So with all of these novels and writings about body horror and the biological medical sciences with science fiction, it's a little ironic that Maurice Renard passed away November 1939 from surgical complications. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Fitting. <laughs> Even though he, he died quite young, uh, like in his 60s, he wrote enough and was prolific enough um, that he, he left a pretty lasting impression. Mm-hmm. I also thought I would talk about the history of transplants. It seemed quite fitting, especially as it was a common theme in all of his work. Mm-hmm, yeah. I mean, I you know, it sort of stunned me that he was talking about things like, you know, outfitting a blind man with electronic eyes and stuff because, you know, that's that's technology that's 80 years down the road in terms of actually coming to pass. But I'm not too familiar with, like, so Hands of Orlock, you know, this guy gets these transplanted hands from a recently dead man. I feel like that's not a thing you could pull off <laughs> now because you have well, all the different... Clearly, Doctor Strange couldn't even do it. Right, because you've got all the different, like, nerve endings and, like, blood vessels and and things to sew up and, like, connect. So I'm wondering, like, it it feels like that's a little bit fantastical now as a premise. (laughs) How fantastical was it in 1922? It was certainly within science fiction, but you could see the medical profession moving towards that. Okay. So the earliest organ transplants are documented in the 16th century in Italy. Oh, okay. And this is kind of like a a trivial pursuit question because it's skin grafts. Okay. Skin is technically an organ, right? Sure. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That. Yeah. But we that don't makes think more... of it as an organ because yeah. it's not like inside us. Yeah. But okay. Yeah. So I can believe skin grafts in the 16th century better than if you were trying to tell me somebody did some heart transplants or something. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Italian doctor Gaspara Tagliacozzi reconstructed noses from people's arm skin. Okay. In 1823, we have one of the earliest records of, again, a skin graft, but done medically rather than in the medical stuff they had in the 16th century. More verifiable, I guess. Yeah. The skin graft was done by Carl Bunger, who was repairing people's noses that had been destroyed by syphilis by growing skin from their thighs. Uh I, I feel like I should mention that throughout all this time, even in the 1600s, there was work being done to see if people could do blood transfusions across animals mm-hmm. and from animal to human as well. There's quite the interesting history of it in France specifically. If you want to look it up, check out Jean-Baptiste Denis from the 1600s. Dude was uh, quite something. Mm-hmm. Um, thanks to Jean-Baptiste Denis's work in blood transfusions... Blood transfusions of any kind were banned, especially in France, up until 1902 when uh, Carl Landsteiner discovered the four blood groups. Yeah, I I figure, like, blood (laughs) transfusions aren't going to go very well if you don't understand 
blood types. I, I think that's why the only evidence of, of transplants that we have up until this point are with skin. Sure, yeah, you, you don't really have the same, you know, elements of having to Complications. Have, yeah, complications and rejection and stuff like that. Yeah. yeah, and even in like the early 20th century, doctors have been trying to save patients from kidney failure through kidney transplants from animals like monkeys, pigs, and goats. Um, but the people would always die a few days later. Yeah, because your body rejects the transplant. Yeah. What's kind of interesting about Renard's novel about a blind man getting prosthetic electronic eyes is 1905, in the Czech Republic, Austrian doctor Edward Zerm did a successful cornea transplant. Okay. The bit that's in front of your eye. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was successful. Because that's 1905, I can see the logical jump for a science fiction writer to go, what about mechanical eyes? Mm -hmm. Only like around 20 years later. Yeah. In 1908, there was, in Switzerland, a successful skin graft from a second person to so-and-so from a donor. Oh, okay, sure. So what had been done previously was like, we're going to take the skin from your ass and put it on your face, and now we're getting skin from other people. Yeah, we're, okay. we're actually having successful donor skin grafts. Mm -hmm. What is kind of key, though, with all of this history that I've just piled on here, is in 1912, French doctor Alexis Carrel won the Nobel Prize for a lot of his work that was around transplants. So um, part of this was figuring out how to connect blood vessels. Um, oh, okay. Doing successful kidney transplants between dogs. Mm -hmm. He also worked with aviator Charles Lindbergh to develop the device that helps organs survive outside the body. Oh, okay. So, yeah. That's neat. So that's 1912. The next piece of transplant history is at 1936, which was a kidney transplant in the USSR from a cadaver to a person. Uh, the person did die from <laughs> rejection. Okay. But yeah, that's the next piece of transplant history. I didn't go any later than that because the novel's written in 1920. The movie that we're watching is 1924. So just to kind of give some context around that. Yeah, so, so there's enough work being done and people winning Nobel Prizes and stuff that they're starting to figure out kind of what needs to be done for this to work, but no one's really gotten it to work yet. But it's enough that there's maybe, you know, excitement about it in the news and people wondering about the possibilities and things. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's kind of like how when it's turn of the century, we have the automobile and people are thinking like, oh yeah, in like the year 2000, we'll probably have jetpacks. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like a logical leap given what we happen to know at this point. Sure. The film which comes out two years later, after the, the, the release of the novel, um, Orlac's Hand. It's directed by our old pal Robert Vina, who we last saw directing Genuina, uh, but who's most famous for Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Mm -hmm. He's been keeping busy uh, since we last saw him. Uh, since Genuina, Vina had directed seven films. Now, it's worth pointing out that Genuina came out in 1920, so in four years, he's put out seven films. Wow. Uh, yeah, I mean, this is back in the day when you could just pump these things out uh, to a much faster degree than, you know, your your big Hollywood blockbusters or even your, your small indie films can be done today, right? Yeah, but it's still the same work, right? So dude is really keeping busy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's working that nine to five. So the seven films that he, he has made in the time between include... The Three Dances of Mary Wilford, which was a drama. Panic in the House of Arden, which was an expressionist detective film in the popular Stuart Weebs series. Uh, so this was a series about a detective that like different directors would come and just do entries in, and uh, he did one. A Woman's Revenge, which was a dramatic film about a wife who murders her husband, which received negative reviews. The Infernal Power, a film so lost that there's no record of what the plot or genre was. <laughs> Raskolnikov, an expressionist adaptation of Tolstoy's Crime and Punishment. 
And then his film right before this one was INRI, a biblical epic about the crucifixion, which portrayed <laughs> Judas as a political revolutionary who betrays Jesus because he won't agree to lead the uprising against the Romans. And the whole movie has a framing device connecting Judas's political revolutionaryism to a modern day setting in Leninist Russia. Oh my. Yeah. That film had problems with censor boards. No shit. Um, in many countries, it had to be released without the modern-day framing device. Wow. Dude. Okay. Sure. So that's what he's been doing in between. So it's about time for him to try and strike gold with that expressionist horror again and call up his old buddy Conrad Veidt and see if they can make the magic happen one more time. <laughs> Now, if you thought that Vina had been keeping busy, since we last saw our friend Conrad Veidt in Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, where he played Cesare, Veidt has appeared in the intervening four years in 11 films. These include Der Janiskopf, or The Head of Janus, which was an adaptation of Jekyll and Hyde from 1920, the same year as the John Barrymore one that we watched, uh, which had all the names changed <laughs> for copyright reasons. Ooh. Uh, directed by F.W. Murnau, our favorite do-a-horror-movie adaptation with all the names changed for copyright reasons director. <laughs> um, it was written by the writer of Caligari, and it was shot by cinematographer Carl Freund, uh, and it had a minor role from a very young Bela Lugosi. Why haven't we watched this? Uh, unfortunately, this film is lost. There are no existing prints of it, despite you know all the things I just said, which mean that it had you know quite a pedigree. Yeah, that sucks. After that, Veidt did a film called Longing, which was a love story, also directed by F.W. Murnau, also lost. That was followed by Figures of the Night, an expressionist horror film by Eerie Tales director Rickard Oswald, uh, which also starred Paul Wegener, which is also lost. That would have been so great. Uh, next, he appeared in Count of Cagliostro, a period piece horror adventure film, also lost. Uh, next, he was in Evening, Night, and Morning, an F.W. Murnau drama film, which is lost. Jeez. That was followed up by Lady Hamilton, a period romance that he appeared in, directed by Richard Oswald. Oh my god. The Secret of Bombay, an adventure film. <laughs> The Love Affairs of Hector Dalmore, uh, a drama film by Oswald. Lucrezia Borgia, an historical drama directed by Richard Oswald, starring Vite as Cesare Borgia. Oh my god! It's not lost. That one exists. Okay, we need to watch that. Not for the podcast, but we need to watch that. Okay. The Indian Tomb, an adventure film where Veidt plays the Maharaja, which was a critical flop. Oh, boy. And then his film right before this one was William Tell, an historical adventure drama. Um, it's worth saying that one of the reasons why so many of these German films are now lost today is Nazis. That makes sense. Yeah. Of, I, I knew about the book burnings, but if they were doing that, it makes sense that they would be burning film as well. Yeah, it was just a big cultural purge. So if the films hadn't gotten international distribution outside of Germany, then they're just gone. Orlax Handa was designed by Vina to sort of combine expressionist and naturalist styles so that a more subtle and gradual visual horror could be achieved. Okay. Um, one of the problems with doing kind of the all-out expressionist thing that you saw in Caligari is it creates a kind of distance between the audience and the film. Yeah, we kind of talked about that when comparing it with The Phantom Carriage. Mm -hmm. And one of the things we talked about in that episode as well was the idea that, you know, no other film has kind of gone expressionist to the extent that Caligari does. So here, Vina's kind of mixing and matching techniques to find what's going to tell the story the best. Mm-hmm. The film premiered in Austria in 1924, followed by showings in Germany and France. It had really, really great critical response, as well as significant commercial success. However, it would not screen in the United States until 1928, by which time silent films were starting to become a little old-fashioned, and because of the delay, it was received very poorly there, and was criticized for it's over-the-top stylization and performances, which no longer seemed current 
to American audiences in 1928. Mm. A funny anecdote about this film was that it nearly didn't get released at all. The censorship boards in Germany at the time rejected the film initially out of fear because it has the methods of police fingerprinting as a plot point Mm. and shows a character circumventing those methods. So the censors felt that showing how fingerprints are acquired by the police and how to defeat them would encourage criminal actions. Uh, They thought that people would know, would get ideas. I guess. What eventually got the film released was the police in Berlin overturning the censor board ruling by testifying that the content that the censors were objecting to was highly unrealistic and that the methods shown in the film were pure fantasy (laughs) and could not possibly work. Nice. Yeah. All right, so let's dive into watching this. Where can people watch along with us? Well, um, like many of the films we've been watching, Orlax Handa has received a nice uh, restored DVD release by Kino International in what they call their restored authorized edition. Uh, So if you're watching on DVD, that's the version I recommend picking up. We also have added a link to this film for the Scream Scene YouTube playlist, as, like all the films we've watched so far, uh, this guy's in the public domain. So you can watch along with us on YouTube there. The film is also streaming on Fandor, uh, which is a monthly subscription streaming service like Netflix, but caters to silent cinema, foreign films, cult films, the kind of stuff that you know, isn't really going to be on Netflix. Uh, So that's another place where you can check this film out. So stuff right up our alley. Pretty much, yeah. (laughs) So folks, you're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and then we will be right back to discuss the film. See you on the other side. Welcome back to Scream Scene. We just finished watching Orlok's Hund from 1924, and I believe this is our second time viewing this. Yeah, we've both seen this movie twice now. Yeah. Um, the last time we saw it was a couple years ago, and this is our first kind of rewatch of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting kind of coming back to it after having the context of what especially the director has done before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what did you think? It was interesting what I remembered and what I didn't. I remember liking this film a lot, and I I liked it this time as well. But throughout the film, I was watching it going like, wow, this is really good. And I was remembering things, and then stuff started happening that I didn't remember as clearly, and that was all the stuff where I was going, oh, this doesn't work, and this doesn't work, and the movie kind of falls apart near the end. Yeah. And um, that was all the stuff that I didn't really remember very well. Oh, really? So it was interesting, the, the stuff that stuck in my brain was the stuff that I liked about the movie. Everything that was happening on screen, I was like, yeah, I remember this, yeah, I remember this. But I remember liking it more the first time. Okay. And I I have some thoughts about why that is. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a mix of, I didn't know the twists. Sure, sure, yeah. That's that's a big part of this. You know, this is one of those movies that has a twist ending or, or two. And sometimes a twist ending movie, you watch it again and that makes the movie better. Mm. Sometimes a twist ending movie, you watch it again and because you know the twist, it kind of flattens the rest of the movie. Yeah. And I think the other reason why I didn't really like it this time around, it's interesting. All the things that made me go like, oh, come on, like the slow pacing, the overacting, the way that it's just, like, relentless in how much it takes its time. Mm-hmm. That's all part of what makes this movie a German expressionist horror film. Yeah. So it's really interesting that I was just like, oh, come on. I don't know why I was feeling that way. Maybe it's also because, like, I knew what twists we had to get to. And that's the thing, when you have a deliberate slow pace... If you don't know what's coming, you can be on the edge of your seat. If you do know what's coming, a deliberate pace can suddenly just feel like a grind. Yeah, I think that's what happened for me. So I will just 
add the caveat of even though my second viewing I didn't enjoy it as much, that shouldn't reflect poorly on the movie. It's not like it was a bad movie. Mm-hmm. I just didn't enjoy it as much. Some films just don't hold up to repeat viewings as well as others. There's some movies that I love that I can watch over and over again and get something new out of uh, every time. And there's other movies where you just sort of watch it once and you go, yeah, I get it. And you don't really need to come back to it. Mm-hmm. Something that I should have brought up before the break, mm-hmm. but I'll, I'll talk about now because it, it does really affect the style of the film and how you react to it. And that's a sort of a technical aspect of filmmaking. It's tinting versus grayscale. Mm, yeah. It's funny because we, we finally addressed and explained what tinting was in our last episode about Nosferatu, that it was the process of adding color to black and white film to indicate lighting and mood and such like that. And we finally addressed it and now got a film that doesn't have it. And it's, it's worth saying that every feature film we've watched up to this point has used tinting mm-hmm. as a In technique. some capacity. Mm-hmm. This film is grayscale, which means that it's the more familiar black and white. And this film came out in 1924, and part of why it's just in black and white just comes from when it was released. By the mid-20s, tinting was being phased out, largely due to the expense, Mm. um, as well as the weaknesses that it introduced into the print of the film. Because the way that you had to tint the film is, you know, you couldn't have a big, long reel of the film because it was all done chemically Mm -hmm. so you had to cut the scenes where there'd be different tinting and dip that into the dye and then re-splice them so on every part where you had a different dye you had to make another cut make another cut and when you edit you know you make all those cuts you splice it but then you just print it and the prints are one long big reel of film so they don't have those breaks in them yeah but in order to have tinting on every print of a film that goes out they have to be all cut at the scene transitions because there's no way to print the color you don't have color film you have to chemically dye it I had no idea that it was, like, that tedious. Yeah, so it was very expensive to do for each and every print of a film you sent out, and it meant that the prints were more likely to break because they all had these physical weaknesses at the scene changes, or at the tint changes, rather. So it was something that people were starting to phase out for that reason. Once they started doing these films in black and white, directors began to like the kind of stark imagery that they got with, you know, these dark blacks and these bright whites. They began to see this as looking grittier, Mm. uh, having a more (laughs) uh, realistic feel. Uh, Tinting was starting to be seen as sort of another layer of artifice and black and white looking more real somehow. The other thing that kind of spelt the end for tinting that is applicable to this film is that film stocks themselves began to become better produced and able to pick up more kinds of light and be sensitive to different kinds of light, which meant that you could have darker scenes without having to throw that blue wash on it to tell everyone that it was nighttime. Yeah. I think that Hands of Warlock really benefits from the grayscale photography. I would agree, and we can talk about that later, about how this film fits into German Expressionism, despite its naturalistic sets and mise-en-scene. Mm-hmm. I think that, you know, for one thing, the stark black and white photography uh, gives the picture a very striking chiaroscuro effect. Mm. It sort of paints the frame in these really dark shadows and these very bright highlights. And I think that you're right in picking up that basically what that's doing is, you know, Vina has lessened the kind of expressionist nature of the sets and costumes, right? Yeah. Uh, People aren't going around like they're in a Tim Burton movie anymore. (laughs) Uh, You know, things look a little bit more real. Now, the sets are still a little exaggerated. Oh, for sure. um, But they aren't... There aren't numbers painted on the walls and junk, right? Nobody's wearing pheasant bondage onesies, right? Yeah. But he keeps the dramatic and oppressive feel of expressionism by this high contrast lighting style Mm -hmm. that really you get the feeling of because it's just stark black and white. Yeah. Should we do the plot summary? Yeah, let's, let's dive into talking about the plot of this movie. I gave a little bit of a brief overview of the novel that this is adapted from, but I still feel like it's worth going into the plot summary of the film. Mm -hmm. How much detail do we want to give about the twists because of spoilers? 
If you are watching this episode and you've gotten past the musical interlude to the part where we're discussing the film after having seen it, like, sorry, dude, you're going to get spoiled. <laughs> like, what is your problem? It, like the, this... the, the, the musical interlude is your spoiler warning. Like, if you have not watched the film, jump off there and go watch the film. It's free on YouTube. We put it on a playlist. Come back and then enjoy the discussion. If you don't aren't interested in watching the movie and you're just going to listen to the discussion, then of course we're going to talk about the spoilery ending stuff because how can we discuss <laughs> the film otherwise? Okay, I just wanted to confirm. I don't know what the statute of limitations are for spoilers for like A an 80 to 90 <laughs> year old film. Far long past. Uh, <laughs> even if we were doing a recent movie, like you passed the musical interlude, we're into spoiler territory. Okay, so... The deal is that Conrad Veidt is playing Paul Orlack, who's a renowned concert pianist, uh, and he has a very loving relationship with his wife that's very sexually focused on his hands, apparently. Uh, his, you know, <laughs> piano-playing hands. And Orlack's coming home from uh, his latest tour, and his train gets into an accident. And I will just say that this train wreck scene, like, it comes very early in the film. It's basically the first thing that happens, and it is... It's kind of knocks it out of the park. Yeah. It's all on location, and it's shot at night with spotlights. There's smoke coming through the wreckage, and tons of people running to and fro trying to, like, find the survivors and get them out before anything else happens. Yeah, it's, it's very chaotic and full of striking visuals. There is some day-for-night photography in there. Um, oh, okay. And it's done well enough that you don't really feel like it jars. The nighttime photography, like you said, they basically use bright spotlights. And the other th clever things they do is nobody's using a flashlight or a torch to look around. Everyone's going around with magnesium flares. Yeah. And, like, no one would probably really do that. But it helps create these bright light sources that can illuminate the key elements of the scene in this darkness. Mm-hmm. Orlac gets out of this. He's in this train accident. And they take him to the hospital, and the doctors tell his wife, you know, he had a bit of a head injury. Also, his hands are... <sighs> and his wife just, like, goes into hysterics about how they have to save his hands, because that's his whole livelihood. It just so happens that they're executing this robber and murderer named Vassar at the same time that they're that they've brought in Orlac with his injuries. So the doctor decides to... Swap hands, as it were. Yeah, he, he cuts Do a off. bit of a handshake. Oh, dear. Orlac's hands are wrecked, so they cut him off, and they give him the dead criminal Vassar's hands. Apparently, they don't outright tell him that this is what they're doing. Like, there is no consent forms being signed or nothing. Well, they, yeah, the film itself never confirms nor denies what's going on. Yes. It's all heavily implied by the doctor being like, oh, man, th this wife's so distraught. Looking at the window, and there's the body of the criminal being unloaded and being like, his hands, you say? Yeah. Like, it's all very, like... They never show you a, a, a moment where the doc's like, hey, Mrs. Orlack, will you agree to this procedure? It sort of just feels like Paul goes to sleep one night with wrecked hands, wakes up with good hands, and even for a while, the doctors are just like, yeah, we fixed them. And then there's a, a really weird scene. There's a <laughs> lot of weird scenes in this movie. This is a very weird and creepy movie. But, you know, before they operate on him, there's a scene where he sees his wife, you know, his wife comes to visit him in the hospital and they're having this, you know, tender moment. And while that's happening, this, like, weird, creepy-looking dude, like, walks by his hospital room and just glares in through the window and freaks Orlac out. Yeah. And it's just, you just, this guy's face is so weird and creepy that you, it sticks in Orlac's mind after the procedure's done. And he has this nightmare in the middle of the night. And he wakes up and there's a note on his bed just from nobody telling him that uh, his hands are the criminal Vassar's hands. Yeah. It's kind of insidious how, like, those couple of nuggets just keep picking at Orlac as he descends further and further into, like, I, I guess madness. Mm -hmm. um, obsessing about his hands. What are his hands? Whose hands are they? Yeah, he goes and confronts the doctor because he wants someone to confirm this. 
and the doctor confirms it. So he, he's like, what's underneath these bandages in my hands? Like, what monstrosity is in here? Yeah. The doctor's like, yeah, whatever, and takes the bandages off. And he's like, yeah, your hands are healed. And Orlok can't really believe it. He asks the doctor, like, can I ever play the piano anymore? And the doctor's like, a strong will can overcome anything. And so they're, they're going to release him from the hospital, but he's, like, really disturbed by the idea that he's been given the hands of an executed murderer. Mm-hmm. There's a really good bit where he can't get his wedding ring on because it's, you know, it's fitted for a different set of hands. Yeah. So he comes home, and things are unhappy at home. There's a scene where he goes to his piano, and, and we kind of... It's it's tough cause, like to get this across because it's a silent film, but the reactions tell us that his playing is not what it once was. Yeah. He's also declared to himself that mm. because these are clearly the hands of a murderer, he will never touch anyone with them ever again. Uh, much to the disappointment of his wife. Yeah, like, she's been looking forward to being held in his arms and, and to feel the touch of his hands. And I mean, this movie could be a drinking game if you took a shot anytime anyone says the word hands. Yeah. Yeah, so he kind of shrinks away from touching anybody. He gets obsessed and fixated on this idea that he has these murderous hands. And it starts to eat away at him, so he, he decides he's going to go and do some research he finds some old newspapers about the Vassar case, uh, talking about how Vassar robbed and killed this old moneylender, and he had this distinctive knife with an X printed on the handle, and his fingerprints were, like, all over the scene of the crime. He was executed. And uh, Orlac comes home, and, like, the knife, Vassar's knife, is just stabbed into the door of his place. The door leading to the piano. And, and yeah, and he's, like, understandably quite alarmed by this and just decides to hide the knife in the piano. And it's, if you're watching this for the first time, there's a weird shot of the maid looking away mm -hmm. and like looking upset. Mm -hmm. And I remember when I first watched this, I was like, oh, did she see him holding the knife? Like what's going on? Because then like we don't cut back to her going, the master has a knife or anything like that. And, like, eventually that gets solved by the end of the film. But, yeah, so there's, like, moments like that where at least it's not, like, a twist that comes out of nowhere. Like, sure. the seeds are planted throughout the film. Although it is upsetting in a way because of exactly what you pointed out, which is that there's a lot of little bits and pieces in this movie early on that kind of really stand out to the, for the degree that they don't make any sense. Mm. And you're like, why am I looking at this? Why are we seeing this? You know, and it's all to set up what's coming later. But, you know, I feel like the best twist endings in movies are innocuous, where you've been given all the clues, but you didn't realize you'd been given all the clues. They felt natural at the time. In this movie, there's just weird stuff that stands out. Speaking of which, that's when a weird dude in a cape and a slouch hat shows up and talks to the maid. And she's talking about how, you know, no, I won't do your bidding anymore. Uh, and he turns, and we can see that it's the same guy who was creepily looking through Orlac's window at mm -hmm. the hospital. So we, we know that there's some sort of conspiracy against him going on for some reason. Yeah. And he gives her the weirdest instructions anyone's ever been given in a movie, I'm sure. He tells her to seduce his hands? Oh, yeah. That was weird. I mean, like, where that goes is she is, like, cleaning the couch or whatever as he's sitting on it, and she kisses his hand, and it's like my hands haven't been touched for a while. And then he has his hands on her head, and then she starts freaking out, like, no, they hurt. They're like the hands of a killer. And then that pushes him even further over the edge. So it's very clear that the purpose of seducing the hands was to further solidify the idea that his hands are a murderer's hands. Yeah, it's clear by this point that someone's manipulating him into having this kind of descent into madness. Yeah. So he starts doing stuff like taking the knife out at night and just practicing what stabbing feels like in the middle of the night. And, you know, things are deteriorating quickly in terms of his sanity. And in terms of their household. Yes. Because, so his wife's name is Yvonne. I only know that because I looked up the character list. Yeah, I don't think it really comes up in the film proper. No. 
So Yvonne has been doing what she can to run the household and do everything with no discernible income coming in for it. It's implied that it's, like, years. Okay, yeah, I, I want to talk about that later because that line threw me for a loop. Yeah. Um, She's doing what she can to make sure that her husband gets help or, like, supporting him in the decisions he makes, um, which is kind of later on in the movie anyways. And she, there's this great scene where, like, the expressionism is quite clear, where she's, like, sitting on this small chair with, like, these four big burly dudes with mustaches and receipts standing behind her, and she's begging them to give her, like, a little bit more time to get money to pay them back because these are creditors and they all like shake their head at the same time. Uh, so then it comes down that no, she has one day to raise the funds to pay them back. Otherwise, like they're kicked out of the house. Yeah. You know, basically the issue is they seem to be, you know, fairly wealthy in terms of the, the house that they live in and the fact that they have these servants and whatnot because he's this famous concert pianist, but he's not going to play anymore. So they have no income coming in. She doesn't work. They had to pay for that expensive experimental procedure <laughs> to give him hands in the first place, right? So yeah. yeah, they're they're out of money. So that's when the film suddenly tells us that Orlac has a wealthy father uh, <laughs> who has not been mentioned up to this point. Yeah. Who also, for completely unexplained reasons, hates his son and is just evil. Yeah. Just evil for the sake of evil, because the film halfway through decided they needed an antagonist that they could directly point to. Because mm -hmm. our antagonist throughout the rest of the film is behind the curtain pulling strings. Mm -hmm. I will say that, kind of speaking to the settings and the mise-en-scene of like the sets and everything being fairly stark, mm -hmm. like in the piano room, there's a piano and a couch and a giant room. And a huge door. And a huge and, and door. And yeah, the characters are often dwarfed by their surroundings. Like, they feel like they're living in... A dollhouse. In, well, yeah, they feel like they're living in a home for giants. Yeah, but the thing is, like, there's hardly anything besides, like, this giant room with, like, one piece of furniture. And, like, I know that that's part of stuff about the German Expressionism. The film also does a lot of effective stuff with that mise-en-scene in terms of you know, using the stark sets and the stark lighting to make Orlac or other characters feel isolated. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of times where there's basically no light on anything except maybe him, and he's just alone in these vast black rooms. So Yvonne goes to see her father-in-law, who... Just Lives in the expressionist part of town. Yeah. he He's just like, no, I'm not going to help you guys with your creditors. I hate my son. I, I hope he dies. <laughs> the most ridiculous, like, mean old man with this, like, creepy... Butler? You know, yeah, the butler looks like Jim Carrey in a series of unfortunate events. You're totally right. And, like, the, the dad is just this mean old dude in a throne. Yeah. yeah he's just a jerk. Yvonne comes back and the maid has been told that she needs to get Orlac to his dad's place or else. And we, we don't really know what the or else is. But the maid convinces Yvonne to convince Paul to go see his dad. So he goes to do that, but he gets there and his dad's dead. It's a little bit like when you're watching the movie... There's this feeling of, like, where are you going with this? Because, you know, we learn that he has this grumpy, wealthy dad. The wife goes to see him. The dad says no. Then she comes back and goes, well, maybe you should try Paul. So then he goes to see him. And it's like, why are we going through this again? But, of course, it's because we need to introduce him before we can kill him. Yeah. So we get there, and he's dead. Vestia's knife, with, like, the X in the handle and everything, is sticking out of his dad when Paul gets there. And he understandably freaks out, but he at least goes to the police. Mm -hmm. He's like, there's been a murder. Mm -hmm. You guys need to come check this out. The police are searching the place and finding Vestia's prints all over the place, which doesn't make sense because he's been dead for years. Yeah, and this is the line where they say that Vassir's been dead for years when it hasn't felt like that in the rest of the film. They're trying to say then that he's been going mad in the house for years, which doesn't come across really anywhere else in the movie. So it's a really weird line. Yeah. Anyways, as they're finding all of these fingerprints everywhere, Conrad Wright just kind of sneaks out the back. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there's also the thing about how his butler shows up 
and how oh, yeah. the butler was lured away from the house so that Orlac's dad could be murdered by a note that's in Vassir's handwriting. Yeah. And so, yeah, like, and Vite, there's a bit earlier in the film where Orlac discovers that his handwriting with these new hands is different. It doesn't match his old handwriting. But, I mean, it looks like someone who hasn't held a pen in a very long time. Yeah, or has, like, like severe who, hand trauma. Which he has. Like, his his practice handwriting looks nothing like the handwriting in the note. He, But you're right. So he backs out of the room. Yeah. And he's freaking out because, you know, all they need to do to pin this murder on him is to find out that he has Bessier's hands. Yeah. You know, the other thing is he himself doesn't know if he's innocent or guilty because he's been so obsessed over this idea that his hands have a mind of their own, that they're murderers' hands, that they they feel evil to him and stuff, that, you know, he can't be certain that maybe he did kill his dad, you know, in his sleep or something, right? Yeah. On his way back home, the guy with the cloak and the hat doing some, like, conspiracy things with the maid this whole time is following him home and goats him into coming into this basement pub and explains to him that he is Vasir. The doctor did the same procedure that he did with Orlac's hands, but with Vasir's head and neck. It's a pretty great scene, to be honest, because, you know, he sits down and this guy's got such a smirky scowl on his face and they're in this basement pub where the only light is this one light hanging over the one table in this place. (laughs) So it's all very dark and shadowy and he dramatically whips his cloak open to reveal his prosthetic hands and then he takes a scarf off to reveal the scar along his neck where his head was reattached. Yeah. You know, and he's saying, yeah, you know, your fingerprints are on everything. They're going to pin this murder on you and I did this to you because you took my hands. Pay me money. Yeah, your 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 dad's wealthy and he's dead and you're the heir. So get me a million francs by tomorrow, or the cops are gonna arrest you, man. Or likes freaking out. Yeah, he's lost it. <laughs> yeah, he gets home. He tells Yvonne everything. Mm-hmm. Yvonne's like, "We should go to the police. Like, don't worry <laughs> about paying him." And like, to be fair, or likes like as if they'll believe me. Yeah. <laughs> and she's like, "They'll believe you. Like I believe you." Which is sweet. I mean, she's right. If you're being blackmailed, please go to the police. Yeah. But like, he, you know, Orlac does have a point. And the police do take a while to believe it. Uh, a, they start to like write out <laughs> a warrant for his arrest while he's telling them the story. Yeah, it's and great. like it's it's quite humorous. And then like one cop is just like, yeah, you know, I think I think we'll give this a shot. Don't worry about this arrest warrant. Go give the money to the dude. We'll follow. We'll arrest him. It'll be fine. So they go back to the pub. Um, or like gives him the money, and then the cops come out. Uh, like fifty of them out of the shadows. <laughs> like, yeah, how like on the- earth did these guys get in here without fucking Vasir noticing this? The cop who stood up for Orlac is like, huh. Mira. Uh, yeah. Okay. So and we're like, who? Okay. So turns out this guy isn't Vassir. He's Nira, the infamous master criminal who apparently like this cop has been like pursuing in some far more interesting and exciting movie that we weren't watching. And the, the revelations and the twists and reveals come so fast, but let me try and just break it down. So <laughs> a, they reveal that the prosthetic hands that he has are just like gauntlets that he's wearing over his hands and he takes them off. The like scar on his neck is makeup. Uh, they reveal that Nira at the time of Orlac's surgery was posing as the doctor's uh, medical assistant, hence why he was in the hospital with the doctor at the time. Therefore, he's not really Vassir. Vassir's definitely dead and Nira's guilty of blackmail. Nira's like, well, you caught me. I am guilty of blackmail, but, like, Orlac's dad still murdered, and I didn't kill him. The fingerprints are all Vassir's, and who has Vassir's fingerprints? It's still Orlac. And Orlac's like, oh, shit. Like, and it's, it's like, oh, man, like, we're back to square one. And then... Yvonne comes to the rescue. Yvonne brings, brings the maid yeah. down into this basement, and this maid somehow just knows everything. She's down in the basement with a copy of the script. And she 
quickly explains, I mean, we know that she's been working with Nira. He's been, you know, manipulating her to manipulate Orlac, but she still knows more about him than it seems like she reasonably should. Yeah, so all the fingerprints are coming from gloves that somehow, through wax bullshit, have Vasir's fingerprints yeah, on so them. And that's what Nira's been using to, like, put the fingerprints everywhere. Furthermore, the murder that Vasir was executed for was done by Nira. Yes. So Vasir was innocent the whole time. Okay. <laughs> so I get that, like, the idea behind this is so that because Vasir was never a murderer, it means that Orlac's hands are innocent. <laughs> he can be at peace and not be freaked out about his murder hands. But, like, I can't wrap my head around what Nira's, like, motivations are or, like, what. Like, because this plot, especially in regards to if we are to believe the line about Vasir having been dead for years at face value, like, this is the most convoluted blackmail scheme of all time. It explains everything in the movie so that there's no weird supernatural stuff or undead people or possession happening. But, like, front to back, it it makes less sense than just if he had been possessed by Vasir or something. Yeah. For me, it's still, like... They still never confirm or deny that Orlok's hands are Vasir's. Like, the doctor never says anything. The The cops are willing to believe this, but, like, there's there's no actual evidence that it's the case. The film is weirdly cagey about it, right? Like... It's just all a lot of implied things where, you know, Orlac asks the doctor, like, whose hands do I have? Are they really Vasseurs? And the doctor just looks at him with, like, a, a grave face. And then we cut to something else for a while. And then we cut back to Orlac coming home and being like, well, I got Vasseurs' hands. Like, we, we never get, like, a title card of the doctor actually saying anything. Yeah. We never see the surgery. Like, it's heavily implied. And I don't really know if it makes a difference one way or the other. For me, it does, because if he doesn't actually have Vasir's hands, then at the end, Orlek's guilt Mm. is solved, but not his psychosis. Well, and whose hands does he have? Because he doesn't have his hands. His hands are fucked. We don't know. We never saw the state they were in. That's true. Maybe the doctor just fixed them. He pulled a Doctor Strange and fixed them. They're just so cagey about telling us what's going on. And I get that it's so that they can uh, have enough mystery at the start of the film that the audience is questioning things as much as Orlac is. Yeah. But I would expect that they, they have to be Vasir's hands for real, because otherwise why would you have this ridiculous double twist whose real purpose, triple twist really, that like Vasir was innocent all along. It's There's a lot of stuff in this movie where you know, what What I think this movie's missing, I feel like all the title cards are dialogue. Like, usually silent movies have title cards that are narration, too. And that's missing in this film, and I feel like that's part of why there are a lot of scenes that you kind of start the scene and you don't know, well, who is this, and what are they doing, and why am I looking at this? And it makes sense after a little while once you've got all this context, but it does contribute pretty severely to what you're saying as this movie's problem with, like, ambiguity... Yeah. Before we start discussing things, just to remind listeners about what German Expressionism is and what it involves. Okay. For the full details on this, check out the Caligari episode. For me, I feel like this film is a clear shift from the German Expressionism we see in Genuina and Caligari to a more naturalistic but still German Expressionist style. So it still has the tension between subjectivity over reality, um, the nightmarish feeling uh, and atmosphere, Mm -hmm. the stark lighting and shadows, which you eloquently described, the themes of madness, betrayal, and dark emotions, overacting the tormented emotions, um, having archetypal characters. I think this film leans too far into that so characters are a little one note. Yeah. But it's still part of German Expressionism. What I think is really interesting with this German Expressionism is because we've seen the German Expressionism in Caligari and Genuina, 
from the same director that are almost overbloated. Like, Genuina especially, just mm-hmm. so much going on visually. Yes. This, with its stark mise-en-scene, with just, like, one piece of furniture, a focus on lighting, and oversized rooms, you still get those feelings of subjective emotional turmoil and loneliness and madness without the cutouts of trees. I would argue this is more effective visually because of what you're saying. Mm -hmm. You know, it gives us the same oppressive feel, but because it ties closer to what reality looks like, we can empathize with it a bit more than we can with the kind of fantasy worlds that those other movies took place in. Definitely. The thing that I think is interesting is, like, I would almost say that this movie feels like a middle step between sort of expressionism and film noir. Yeah, I think because of the mystery. Yeah, you've got the mystery story, but, like, the other thing about film noir that, you know, makes it different from just a crime film or a detective film is that kind of fatalistic, oppressive, you know, me-against-the-world feeling where you don't know who to trust and what to believe. I was thinking about whether this film is a horror movie in light of our discussions with Hexen. So the reason why we justified Hexen not being a horror movie is because it peels back the curtain, says this is what you're actually afraid of, there's no reason to be afraid of it. The Hands of Orlac does the same thing, but I, I would argue that this is still a horror movie despite that similarity to Hexen for two reasons. One. Yvonne and Paul survived this awful experience with Nira. There is a sense of that survivor. But more importantly, the intent of the film was to horrify and scare us with feeling this relentless descent into psychological terror. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, no argument from me here. I mean, it's got the Scooby-Doo ending. where we we pull away everything and it was all just some hoax. But that doesn't mean it's not a horror film because the majority of the movie is trying to freak you out and be creepy and plunge us into the mind of madness of this guy. And the, the thing about it is that, like, the body horror that Orlac feels is real. I think this movie's far more interested in Orlac's psychological breakdown than in the, like, machinations of the crime mystery drama that drives the plot. Definitely. I think that's why it kind of crumbles when it's time for the reveal. Yeah, and it's also why it's like it's paced so weirdly because like this is a film that's paced really slowly until the last act. The vast majority of this film is just scenes of like Orlock at home being disturbed. The film's strongest scenes, they're they're bolstered up by the evocative lighting and the cavernous sets and Veidt's performance, but they're the scenes where we're focused on the body horror. These aren't my hands. Whose hands are they? Can I be me with these hands? You know, what are these hands doing to me? You know, and stuff. When it comes time to actually have a story, you know, the film rushes through it. Like, I would assume that the murder would be the inciting incident, you know, and then the rest of the movie would be him being like, oh, did I commit this crime or whatever? They don't spend really any time on the question of, did I commit this crime? The murder happens, he freaks out, and then the next scene we're told, no, someone's framing you. The film is highly chilling and disturbing to me, but because those scenes are all just the ones where it's Orlac psychologically dealing with his new situation, it kind of contributes to this feeling that nothing really happens in most of this movie. You know, the majority of the characters in story and exposition are rushed into the last few scenes, and that ends up kind of trampling on the, like, carefully constructed mood that the film's built up to that point. The ending's chaotic, and it it borders on absurdity. The reveal after reveal after reveal, it explains everything, but it's not any more plausible. It intensifies, but real slow. But without the story, like, that slow burn just fizzles out for me. Yeah, like, how much better would it have been if, you know, we had maybe known about Orlac's rich dad from the start? Yeah. Like, his hands get cut off in the train accident, and the wife's like, how am I going to pay for this operation? And the dad's like, screw it. I'm not paying for it. I don't like Orlac. It would also help to know why his dad doesn't like him. Like, that's just so arbitrary. You know, if we had met the dad earlier, and we knew that he was shitty because he refused to pay for the operation... And then, you know, he gets the hands, and he can't play the piano, and he's worried about things, and the knife shows up. And then have the murder happen, 
And let's have some of the movie at least be dealing with Orlac trying to figure out, like, oh my god, did I kill him or not? And dealing with that anxiety. Because that anxiety is probably the most interesting thing in the film. And it lasts for 30 seconds. Definitely. You know, the film has a lot of interesting ideas. I think that Vina was only interested in one of them. I mean, what makes the movie work, and this, you know, because this is not a bad movie. We're ragging on it a little bit. It's not bad. What makes it work is Conrad Veidt. The other actors in the film aren't bad. Like, their performances are, you know, in keeping with the film's creepy tone. But, like, this is really just a Conrad Veidt showcase. Yeah. Like, his control of his body is just incredible to me. The way that, you know, you can watch him and tell that he's kind of moving every muscle on purpose. Um, I would say that this movie, in telling its story, makes one big crucial mistake. What's that? It doesn't stick with a point of view. If the thing that Vina's really interested in is showing us Orlac's descent into madness, as we've said over and over, then it should be letting us see the world through his eyes 100%. And instead, we cut away. Sometimes it's for plot reasons that could have been handled more elegantly. But the one cut that breaks the film the most is seeing Nira contacting Orlac's maid. Mm -hmm. We don't know who he is yet, so at least we can buy into the initial idea that he's Vasir. But it does mean that from that point on in the movie, you know, unlike Orlac, we never believe for a second that he's committed any crime. And that distances us from his fears. And that then lessens the entire film's impact, because he's having all these fears about what if I'm a murderer, and we know he's not. We know he's being set up. And, you know, if we are supposed to be empathizing with his breakdowns, we shouldn't be knowing that he's being manipulated until Basir comes out of the shadow, or Nira, or whatever you want to call him, and says, aha, I've been manipulating you this whole time. I think that when the movie's devoted to being creepy and weird, you know, when it's devoted to building an oppressive mood of desperation in its characters. That was the thing that really struck me, was how desperate Paul and Yvonne Orlac feel through most of this film. And that was a feeling I could really empathize with, was that feeling of you have no options left, and there's nowhere to go, and there's nowhere to run to, and who do you go to, and who do you turn to? It's good, you know, when it allows the the natural body horror response of what it's like to have hands that aren't yours. It's good. But all the, like, mystery story clever stuff that, like, you can tell that probably in a novel came across as, like, oh, ho, ho, how clever is this? Yeah. Just on film really falls flat. Definitely. So let's go into ranking this. Okay. Kind of jumping off of your last point about a focus and sticking with a certain point of view, I think that The Hands of Orlock should go below Student of Prague because they both have a similar idea of a guy questioning what his reality is. I mean, you're right. You know, one of the things we talked about in that Student of Prague episode was how we'd never see the murder that Baldwin's double commits. We stick with Baldwin and get, just get his reactions. And I think you're, you're right on that. I'm not sure because I like the techniques that Hands of Warlock is using a lot more. I like the cinematography more. I find Hands of Warlock a lot creepier. I mean, the the plot's kind of a mess, but as a horror movie, as something that's making me feel anxious and afraid and creeped out, I'm more creeped out watching Hands of Warlock than I am for, like, most of Student of Prague. Most of Student of Prague is kind of a silly romance drama, and then it, it amps up near the end. I like Conrad Veidt's acting a lot more than Paul Wigner's. To, to be honest. I mean, that's that's totally fair. I definitely agree with you that it goes around here on the list because I don't think it deserves to be higher than Nosferatu, which is the next highest up. But I do think it's better than Eerie Tales, which is the next down. It's just, is it better or worse than Student of Prague? I'm thinking it's better because it's... I mean, you can argue it's got some advantages because this movie was literally made 10 years later, <laughs> but I think it's got a better handle on the body horror and the, the loss of control and stuff. I mean, they're both, in a way, movies about loss of control, right? About mm-hmm. being afraid that you've done things that you aren't really responsible for. But I kind of empathize or relate to Orlac more than I do Baldwin. Yeah, <laughs> despite both premises, the hands of Orlac 
Descent to Madness feels a lot more real mm-hmm. than the Descent into Paranoia with Student of Prague. And I think Hens of Warlock, on a writing level, is a bit more of a mess. Mm-hmm. I think it's got more structural problems. I think Student of Prague is, is structured real well. But I think Hands of Warlock, like, is more effective horror because it it just kind of creeps me out and puts me on edge, like, way more. And it comes down to just, like, the lighting and the mise-en-scene and Conrad Veidt's performance just giving me the willies a lot more (laughs) than Student of Prague did. I am completely opposite with you in regards to what gave me the willies. Okay. I will say Hands of Orlac... I really appreciate how it's developed and pushed forward the German expressionist motif uh-huh. and themes and all that. So I would be okay with Hands of Orlac going above it. Okay, then I think that's where we're going to put it. It is, I will admit, it's close. Like, they both definitely go here. It's just, you know, a close race, and it's hard to compare them. But uh, I, think, I think I would also just rather watch... Hands of Orlack again, but now I'm just going to make you disagree with me more. <laughs> yeah, I, I so disagree, but that's that's totally okay. Okay. <laughs> okay, so then that means that Orlack's Handa from 1924, directed by Robert Vina, is going in at number four on the list. Below Nosferatu, Eine Symphonie des Grounds, and above Der Student von Prague. Cool. I'm okay with that. Sort of. <laughs> If you, like me, might want to contest this, feel free to send us an email at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com or visit our Tumblr page, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com, and you can submit through the Ask box. Come at us on Twitter. Uh, you'll find us at, at underscore screamscene. You can also find the list for all of the other rankings on our Tumblr, as well as the playlist that Ben put so much time into curating for us. Yes, our, our YouTube playlist. Yes, yeah, so you can um, watch along with us. Scream Scene updates every Wednesday, and we are on iTunes and SoundCloud. We appreciate you giving us a review on iTunes or comments on SoundCloud. We are eager to hear your feedback. Yeah, please show me some support in Student of Prague being better than Hands of Orlac. I don't know if I'm going to let that go. I don't know. I guess I'll just have to. We've ranked it. Yep, it we can't happened. move anymore. No, that's right. It's, it's decided. Done. It's done. It's irreversible. Irrevocable. <laughs> oh what are we watching next week? So next week, we are bouncing back across the Atlantic to the United States for The Monster, a film starring Lon Chaney Sr. as a mad scientist in an abandoned sanatorium. <laughs> that sounds super interesting. I can't wait to watch it. Yeah, this will be uh, a new film for both of us. I've never seen it either. So. Yeah. All right, we'll see you guys next week. Thank you for listening, Creatures of the Night. Bye. Bye.